0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: The big question, how do you tilt away from the United States when it is the home of mega-cap growth stocks? I want to begin this show by asking that question to James Athie of Aberdeen Standard Investments. James, help me understand that. It is the home to mega cap tech. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft surging this year and back at all-time highs for all three of those stocks. Why would you tilt away from that story towards the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, good morning, John. I mean, if you had done so for whatever reason, then then obviously you would have underperformed significantly because globally equities have... Uh, you know, had nowhere near the performance that we've seen from some of these mega cap tech uh, names that you've just described there. And that's not just in the, you know, immediate pre- and immediate post-COVID period. That is something which has been going on for some time. I mean, the the Euro Stocks Index is not far from the same level it was at in the late 90s. When you compare that to the performance of the US indices, the divergence is stark. Uh, So, if you are a value investor and you look at things like, you know, price to earnings or price to sales, and you look at tech names and say, oh, I just can't justify owning these names with such multiples, then obviously, you've missed out to this point. It, it is essentially a leap of faith. There is no possible way that you can do a calculation to justify the valuation of those big tech names. You are merely investing in a narrative, in a belief that they are able to turn what are either dominant market positions currently or, or, or emerging market positions currently in, this, in the case of a name like Tesla, uh, you believe they can convert that into you know the winner takes all and become a true global monopoly. Um, and again you can't prove that that is merely a leap of faith.
0: I I agree, James, that there's different companies involved in these great growth stocks. But what I find fascinating is what will be the action of the value laggards. Do you just assume we get one big combination, one big roll up of all these companies generating low single digit revenue growth and not good cash flows?
2: Well, the way that the market has evolved in time in recent years, certainly, it does lend itself to that idea where there has been a movement away from truly active bottom-up stock picking investment towards uh, factor investing towards sector investing towards passive investing in all its form uh, and towards more sort of price dominated strategies like like momentums and 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 such like and that does have the tendency to lump together similar companies through various dimensions into one um, uh, you know uh, 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 analogous group and and that really does presumably look attractive then to people who are doing fundamental research and looking at the company's bottom up but uh, you're you're wrong until till the masses start to to see the same things that you are, and that can take a lot longer than than most invest, investors are, you know, uh, patience can last. So it's a very tricky it's a very tricky situation. I think in that environment to be a, a value investor, to be a bottom up stock picker, you have to be very long term, and you have to accept that you may look wrong for a period of time, and you also have to accept that markets are not being moved around on a daily basis by people who are doing the same type of analysis that you are.
3: You sound skeptical, James, and you're not alone. A lot of people are very skeptical of this rally, yet it continues, and it continues on the heels of very cheap money, as well as governments around the world pumping cash into their economies to try to keep things afloat. Is your negativity being translated into a bearish view on U.S. equities, on risk assets, or is it just sort of a displeasure at the moment, at this uncomfortable moment that we're in?
2: It's probably both, Lisa, to be honest. Yeah, I'm definitely sceptical. I, again, I, I think without being so broad brush and just saying, hey, big tech, you know, tech, 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 and you just say the word tech a lot, on that, and that that counts as a, as an investment thesis. You know, I would look within the tech group and say there's quite a big difference between what Amazon is doing and what and how Amazon is able to uh, manage its business through an economic cycle versus Facebook, and there is also probably quite a big difference between Amazon and its ability to not just survive but probably thrive in the post-COVID world versus an auto manufacturer like. Tesla. I just think that the challenges that these businesses face are dramatically different, uh, and that doesn't seem to be being reflected in stock prices, which, again, I think is is part of this psychological driver of, of equity returns that, that's dominating at the moment. I don't think it's it's necessarily to do with analysis, but it's very much to do with psychology. Uh, does that make me bearish? Yes, it does. It, I, I truly believe that You know, my role as an investor is to to invest based on the fundamental research that I do, that we do, uh, and when things are expensive relative to our understanding of what's going on in reality. Um, then it then it behooves us to to reflect that in our portfolio positioning. And, you know, again, I'm just looking at some of these big yeah. tech names, looking at the change in price of, of Tesla, I'm going to pick on Tesla, but just looking at the change in price just in five days, uh, I can't possibly think that the uh, outlook for that company selling autos of questionable quality in recent years has changed so dramatically in such a short space of time, and that would make me want to lean in the opposite direction
1: hey james i'd love to think that the investor committee meeting at aberdeen standard is a little bit more sophisticated than you all screaming tech multiple times around the table (laughs) for several hours a narrative that has built up over the last several days is the tilt away from the united states not because of style not because of composition of the indices but because people believe that the economic recovery that's being engineered in places like europe places like china is more dependable reliable than what we're seeing play out here in the United States, which is becoming increasingly more uncertain over the last several weeks. What do you make of that argument, James?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, John. You know, before I'd even started to look into this, I was skeptical immediately for, for really the main reason being that when the US sneezes, the world catches a cold. And the recent history has made that view, I think, stronger rather than weaker. The US is the only large um, major economy which permanently runs the current account deficit, therefore, is a source of demand globally. China has been a source of demand globally also, but that's that demand is secondary to demand elsewhere predominantly, at least it has been through history. The Chinese consumer is not yet there. You know, consumption may be 50% of GDP in China, whereas it's you know closer to 80% in the U.S. So, to me, it's very difficult for the global economy to really be firing on all cylinders without the U.S. So, first of and foremost. I think that makes me sceptical. I think the other issue really is that what we're seeing at the moment is the sugar high. It doesn't really tell us anything about what the medium-term trajectory for economies is. Um, with Europe, you run into the same issues which have bedogged that region since the late 90s when they decided to form this monetary union. And that is to say that it is it is incomplete. There are structural rigidities. There are you know divergences across the, the various economies. Uh, and that does make it very 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 difficult to generate sufficient demand to get those economies up to capacity and start to generate wage and price pressures in a way which would suggest uh, an economy really motoring forward. So, I think it's interesting. I would also throw the currency in there. The currency is a bit of a problem. Again, it's a current account surplus region. It's more sensitive to the currency than than potentially the US is. And so, if investors run too fast, too far, that can actually get in the way of the recovery. So, that, that will be one to watch as well.
1: James Athie, appreciate your time this morning. Joining us from Aberdeen Standard Investments on one of the debates of the moment, Tom Keane, which is the rest of the world versus the United States. But it's a different debate now. There's a belief held by some, held by many, not by me, that maybe because the United States might be the source of instability for the global economy, given what we're seeing play out in many states in America right now, that your money, your capital is better elsewhere in regions like Europe and in places like China.
0: Isaac Botansky out of Ohio Wesleyan has a beautiful Midwest feel for the policy of all these Congress people, all these Senate people as well. He joins us now from Compass uh, Research. Isaac, I love within your detailed note how you gross up to $1.5 trillion. So we're talking $1 trillion. Isaac Boltanski is talking $1.5 trillion. Does that tell me the eventual bill is going to be $2 trillion? It
4: tells you it's going to be higher than a trillion,
0: and it tells you that this Congress
4: is more willing than any Congress before it to spend money. And the reality is deficit hawks are an endangered species on Capitol Hill. And so when we know that there's going to be a legislative vehicle, which we know there will be a phase four vehicle, it will become law before uh, the conventions, so investors should expect it to become law by early August, that vehicle is moving and everyone is going to try to hang their ornament on the Christmas tree. And Tom, when that happens, the price tag gets bigger. And so I'm telling my folks, a trillion and a half is a fair assumption at this point in time.
3: Isaac, nobody's worried about a deepening deficit in the United States, as you said, whether they be Republicans, whether they be Democrats, which brings us to the election in November, people saying that perhaps if Joe Biden wins, it won't mark much of a change to policy. We might not get that increase in taxes and you'll get a doubling down on some sort of infrastructure spending leading to a market neutral or even market positive event. Can you parse through your thinking there?
4: Yeah, so when I talk to my clients about what a blue wave scenario looks like, I think it's easiest to bucket the issues into legislative and administrative. On the legislative front, we will have a torrent of proposals, everything from the Green New Deal to Medicare for All. But you have to look at the votes. And the reality is, if Democrats win the Senate, they will have a very slim majority. And within that majority are red state centrist Democrats, like Mansion, Toomey, Cinema? So you have that three, that cohort there, who I think will really dictate terms in the Senate and make it much more difficult. If not impossible, to we'll get some of these priorities through. So I think that ultimately you would see a tax bill by the end of next year in a blue sweep, but it wouldn't be as onerous as the Biden campaign has proposed corporate rate would be I, three to four points higher, but it wouldn't be nearly as expansive as the campaign is, has outlined.
3: Isaac, a lot of people would agree with you, and we're seeing an increasing number of notes that say something similar, that if we do get a Biden win as well as a Democratic sweep, it wouldn't be that negative for markets. I'm wondering how much people are factoring a potential antitrust, a regulatory push to break up companies, particularly big tech, as they get bigger and bigger.
4: So this is, I think this is the most important point. While we don't need to fear the legislative agenda nearly as much, We must be, as investors, cognizant of the administrative agenda, especially as the administrative state has grown materially in the recent decades. And so I think that the easiest way to think about this is to say, where has the proverbial pendulum swung the most under the Trump administration? And we should expect it to swing back the other direction with similar force. And here we're talking about energy, the environment, and healthcare, most notably. The second tier is financial services, mm. um, and so yeah, the simple okay.
0: answer entrance- is, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, it's great. I mean, I'm worried about the Cleveland Indians getting renamed and the Washington Redskins. <laughs> There's all these other diversions, Isaac, away from actual policy prescription. Now, come on, you're from Ohio. You know it's an election year and all that matters forward is the election. Over as John Farrell mentioned earlier, overlay the election now on the next 6 weeks of fiscal stimulus. How does that election ballet filter into getting to year 1.5 trillion?
4: Politicians aren't good at taking things away in any year, especially not an election year when they're running for something. And so with that motivation, lawmakers are going to return to town, and they are going to stroke a big check aimed at unemployment insurance, another round of recovery rebates, and anywhere from 500 to $750 billion for states and local municipalities. There will be a big, big fiscal package coming out of D.C. by early August, in part because there is an election in November, and lawmakers are realizing that reopening is not synonymous with recovery. And so there's going to be another slug of fiscal assistance coming.
1: Isaac, fantastic work, as always, and appreciate your time this morning. Isaac Boltanski there of Compass Point.
0: Let's get started right now. We're going to focus on the dollar. We've really been remiss on that over the last number of days. Let's catch up quickly. Jordan Rochester with us. He writes exceptionally acute notes for Nomura, usually about, you know, Sterling. There was a point where Jordan was Brexit this, Brexit that, Brexit, 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 uh, Brexit. But right now he's really focused on this great mystery of 2019, which was the resiliency of the dollar. Jordan Rochester, can the dollar finally give way and weaken Hi,
5: Tom. Yes, it can. I mean, I was a dollar bull for quite a long time towards the end of 2019 into this year. And it was a few factors driving that the U.S. outperformance story. And when it comes to the big dollar, you can talk about so many different topics uh, to express a view. But really, Tom, it boils down to, do you think the U.S. growth will outperform the rest of the world? That's it. If you know those, that simple variable, that that differential, you know where the dollar is going to go. And what's quite different about this crisis is we've had an extraordinary response from Europe compared to the last crisis uh, back before uh, a decade ago, and also the policies they've used as well. So these sort of job retention schemes, which are much more widespread in the euro area and the UK compared to the US, it should mean that when we do reopen, which we are, we have a snapback where you have everybody back at at work to some degree at least, and it's much faster as well, where in the U.S. there's going to be a, a bit more of a sluggish recovery as the market's going through the job uh, instead. And so you are to see people having to look for jobs. And yes, there will be an improvement in the jobs market as the economy reopens. But at the same time, it won't be that snapback to nearly full employment that the governments in the euro area have tried to uh, construct here. So for that reason alone, we've got a much more optimistic outlook for the euro area this year into next And then that's before I talk about all the other things going on, such as the sort of second wave risks in the U.S., the lockdowns taking place right now and the risks to that. And then there's the U.S. election as well. Before I get into all of that, Tom, that's where I think things are. U.S. growth underperforms the euro area. And as a result, the dollar weakens.
1: Jordan, sometimes it is really simple. Show me where global risk appetite is and I'll show you the direction of the dollar. But you're asking me to imagine something a little bit different. It's a world where the U.S. stumbles and risk appetite remains elevated elsewhere. Is that really a world you can imagine?
5: It's possible, John. I know it's not normal. We're used to, whenever the the U.S. sneezes, the world gets a cough. Well, in this circumstance, it's possible that the U.S. still grows, John, but it doesn't grow as fast as everywhere else. That's the scenario we're talking about. So there will be a a bounce back in American growth. Let's not be too pessimistic. The point we're making is it will just be less than elsewhere. And then, okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, the other factors driving this. So because you've got rising cases in the U.S., it's pretty clear from the data. It's common sense, too. Rising cases leads to less economic activity as folks are just worried about going to the restaurant, going to the bar. We're already seeing that play out. Uh, in the mobility statistics for certain states and certain areas, even in this early stage of that sort of revived second wave, sort of rolling wave uh, story in the U.S. So you're going to have, in this quarter, the U.S. struggling with COVID-19 cases. And then when we get to the August uh, period, we'll be talking about Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. We'll be talking about higher taxes in the U.S. And as a result, you'll have the market pricing a less, a optimistic view on U.S. assets versus the rest of the world.
1: Well, Jordan, show me where to push through that dollar weakness in a world where no one wants a stronger currency.
5: Yes, that's a good point. Well, you're seeing it play out already. You're seeing some Chinese renminbi strength this week. You're seeing euros start to go higher. And I think the way policymakers at central banks will square the circle is, it's okay, John, if your currency appreciates for good reasons. In the past, we've had episodes where we were dealing with deflation risks in the eurozone, but we had a strong currency, I'm um, thinking back to 2017. And so that was when it was a pretty tricky issue for the ECB. But I think policymakers globally will be happy if they're able to successfully reopen their economies without COVID-19 picking up too strongly, successfully reopen them without too much damage to the labour market. I think the currency is going to be lasting on their mind if they can get those two things done, with a good success rate.
3: Jordan, one of the bull cases that you mentioned for the Eurozone was their supplemental income to people who had lost their jobs or lost work as a result of the coronavirus. And yet you have economists from a number of places saying this is only going to perpetuate zombie jobs and zombie companies and will lead to a lack of productivity in the region and a slower recovery going forward, especially because some of these programs may not be re-upped. And if they are, it will cause a huge deficit in the region. What's your counterargument to that
5: I guess I mean there's some points that are definitely valid if you're propping up a job that does no longer exist then that needs to at some point come to an end well that the question is how many jobs no longer exist anymore uh, we don't know and the other point is those workers who are currently on that job retention scheme they're not getting that full salary they're getting a portion of that and they also they want to go to work too so whilst they're in this furlough period they might be looking for jobs elsewhere So what it's doing is it's providing that social security buffer in the meantime to allow those workers to find the new jobs at a a sort of pace that's better for them rather than rushing into things. So my counter-argument to that is it's never going to be forever. And the second point is as long as the governments don't try to pay it back quickly, the recovery should be okay. What do I mean by that? As long as we avoid austerity in the same way we saw in 2010 and 11. Things should be better for the eurozone, better for the global growth, well, better for the U.K. As long as governments don't follow that sort of old playbook from 2010, the recovery should remain intact.
0: Uh, Jordan Rochester, quick question here. Away from euro dollar, what is the best way to express dollar weakness? Which pair works?
5: Well, we're looking at sort of risk on proxies. So we have the likes of uh, sort of long Aussie Kiwi, long Euro Yen. I would usually talk about how we should see the, the, the dollar block outperform in this global growth role such as Aussie dollar. Uh, but emerging markets might be the better play here, such as what's going on with China. We've got the bull market in Chinese equities this week. <clears throat> and our guys in China are saying, don't argue against it. They're saying, essentially, what we're going to see in China is actually much more fiscal stimulus in the pipeline. And as a result, don't fight the bull rally that we're seeing in China, Tom.
1: John Rochester. Always great to catch up with you joining us from Namora.
0: Right now, we could have a two-hour conversation with our next guest. Edward Morse joins us from Citigroup, of course, known globally for just incredibly prescient global macro views on hydrocarbons, and yes, on commodities in general. But today we have to rip up the script. We have Ed Morris with us of Citigroup, and what it must be about is what Mr. Buffett did yesterday. Ed, there is upstream, maybe that's the world of Ed Morris, and there's downstream where Lisa fills the the Hummer H2 uh, full of uh, the latest (laughs) flavor of gasoline, and then there's that thing Ed Morris midstream, where Mr. Buffett del- uh, dallied yesterday, looking at pipelines of Dominion, tell us about the midstream value play that's out there. Are there many more Dominions to be played by the big money? There, there are. I mean, we we're we're in a distressed environment at the moment.
6: You can't uh, over exaggerate that. Uh, and we're looking forward. And uh, if you, as you look forward, the American production of oil and gas is going to grow. Um, uh, and as it grows, uh, those who have the capacity to move it from wherever it's produced to wherever it's needed are going to get a throughput boost, um, and that throughput boost, uh, you know, will increase the value of of those midstream properties, depending, of course, on where they are. But yes, it was a savvy play, do you think?
3: All right. Is a savvy play on the pipeline industry or on the natural gas universe, which has been particularly beaten up?
6: Uh, the natural gas is, is has been beaten up, uh, in a different way from the oil side. They're both opportunities. Um, we had another thing that happened yesterday, namely a court deciding that the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, had to be shut on August 5th. Um, and that could create another opportunity for another kind of midstream play. Uh, if you can't get it out by pipe from Dakota, you have to get it out somehow, and rail is the next best thing. So, uh, there are, there are other, other, dislocations in the country uh, other than the one that's on the East Coast. And the East Coast problem uh is in part a, uh, a problem related to the Southeast in particular, where natural gas is no longer seen as the incremental um uh, choice of fuels for for the for the um for the, for the for the for the electricity industry. So the power sector is looking at kind of stagnant growth on the NU side. Uh, and in that stagnant growth, there's increase in renewables, and the increase in neuro- renewables will come at the expense of natural <laughs> gas. That's kind of on the increment, but there's plenty of flow that's going to go through in the meantime.
3: uh, Tom started the conversation aptly talking about the difference between upstream and midstream and downstream, uh, notwithstanding his discussion of my Hummer usage. I will say there is a question about whether uh, Warren Buffett's play, not only with uh, this particular purchase, but also the Occidental equity investment that he made earlier this year, is a bet that the the sell-off in fossil fuels has gone too far too fast. Do you think that that view holds merit, that we can see further upside? in the entire fossil fuel complex, given how beaten up it has gotten this year?
6: Uh, yes, we think so. And if you, if you look at the data, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest drop has been in the upstream side. Uh, drilling activity has collapsed from uh, over 680 oil-directed rigs at the beginning of the year to under 200 right now. Uh, frack crews have collapsed from the 300 level to well under 100. Um, and we think that's the bottom. So I, I think if you look back to July from September and <clears throat> even more from next January, we'll see that we're probably at the bottom right now. Uh, and that uh, given where prices are and where we expect them to go, we're going to see a pickup of, of drilling activity and a pickup of completion activity. And uh, uh, and that'll be the case in both uh, oil and gas. On the gas side, the pickup's going to... Uh, be very price uh, driven in our judgment. Uh, we saw prices getting out of the dollar you know, seventy range for gas into above $1.80 dollar eighty uh, very quickly. That's because of summer weather. As we project where the gas market is now in terms of supply and demand, and think about where it'll be next year, we're, we're thinking prices are going to be kind of from their second quarter average probably double uh, by the second quarter of next year. So we are we think at an inflection point um and maybe uh, buying assets at a distressed level um, is a, is a wise move um it depends on you know what you're looking at in terms of transactional analysis but uh you know we think there'll be consolidation uh ahead and that consolidation is probably going to lag by another six to eight months but it'll certainly very likely to be on the horizon by the first right. quarter of next year
0: Ed, very quickly here, a final question. If there is an inflection in point, that means a price inflects as well. Not out one year, but out two, three, four years, where do you see Brent crude settling at? Is it substantially higher?
6: Sure. I mean, if you let's look at the very short to medium term horizon and beyond the medium term horizon. So if we just look at where the curtailments in capital spending have been, where we expect U.S. production to slide to, Canadian production to slide to, as the global economy recovers. Uh, we're looking at uh, at Brent at 50 uh, and above by the end of the year and 60 by the end of 2021. How durable that will be is, an, is a very open question. If you look at the economics, the pure economics of, uh, of drilling activity in the world as a whole, uh, the world ought to be able to Sustain not much more than forty-five to fifty dollars a barrel, Brent-related, on a, on a long-term sustainable basis. Because at, at that price level, the world can produce an awful lot of oil out of shale, out of deep water, out right. of oil sands, let alone out of conventional. But as we get over, you know, this particular short-term uh, crunch, we think Brent goes to sixty by the end of next year.
0: Interesting. Ed Morris, thank you so much. Edward Morris with Citigroup, of course, head of their commodities uh, research most timely there, particularly on what Mr. Buffett wrought um, yesterday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.